The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. June Thomas welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new non-fiction books. My guest today is Daniel Gross, whose book, Better, Stronger, Faster, The Myth of American Decline and the Rise of the New Economy, has just been published by Free Press. Dan, thanks so much for coming into the Slate studio. Well, it is my great pleasure to be here, June. I'm so excited to talk with you for all kinds of reasons, but especially because I shamelessly ripped off, I mean, I took inspiration from your old podcast, Every Day I Read the Book, uh, when I was um, dreaming up the afterword. I believe they call that aggregation these days. <laughs> aggregation, yes. yes. Yes, perfectly legitimate aggregation. And you and I worked together for eight glorious years at Slate. We and, did indeed. And I should disclose I was involved in s- editing some of your pieces that appeared in Slate occasionally, and I offered some editorial advice on this book. Um, so, Dan, you mad optimist. You start the book by reminding readers of what seemed like a low ebb. In August 2011, S&P downgraded America's credit rating. Congress was squabbling about raising the debt ceiling and the country was still hungover from the credit crunch, the housing bubble. Oh, my God, just saying all this is depressing me and suffering very high unemployment. Can you just remind us of the gloom and doomsayers take so that you can later disabuse us of it? You know, first of all, this was coming a couple of years after our economy had totally melted down. We had lost millions of jobs. The economy had shrunk at a 6% rate in the first part of 2009, something we hadn't seen since the 30s. It seemed like we were getting back on our feet only to be undone by our dysfunctional politics. I mean, a country that literally can't decide whether it's going to pay its bills at a time when the rest of the world seems quite dangerous, when China is roaring ahead and all these columnists come back and say, look at all the great stuff they have there. We can't even do the basics. And this was at a time when unemployment was very high, housing still a very big problem. And so it was very easy to look at not just the news flow coming out that August, but look look at what had happened in the past few years. Look at all these metrics, income is down, housing, employment, uh, and say, how are we ever going to get back to any sense of equilibrium, to feeling good about ourselves, to being on the right path? So let's talk about some of your refutations of America's decline. Although the United States might be in bad shape, the rest of the world stinks too. So that's the rule number one for why we're not in decline. Everybody else stinks also. <laughs> and, you know, that's a sort of a, an excuse that one of my kids might give. Right. You know, I was – well, I was misbehaving, but, you know, Johnny and Stephen were setting things on fire. So the fact that I was throwing spitballs at the teacher ain't so bad. But if we are to no longer be the world's preeminent economic leader, somebody else is going to have to surpass us. And I don't see a whole lot of candidates out there. Now, China, of course, has many times more people than we have. It's growing at a more rapid clip, so it's very easy to draw the line and say, you know, three years out, they might be bigger. But even if they are larger than the U.S., they are going to be a much poorer country. And by the way, not a democracy. And by the way, you know, full of corruption and shoddy construction and a demographic problem. 
you know, they've had a one-child policy for 30 years, which means they are going to have an, very few people working and an awful lot of people older. I mean, their problems compared to ours are much, much worse. So there is this sort of cottage industry of people who have written books and talking about our lost decade or we're going to have one. We've already had one. And then who go around the world and they, you know, they used to go to the Europe and say, you know, T.R. Reid wrote this famous book in 2004, the United States of Europe. Hey, look, these guys have it all together. They have great social welfare. They're going to have a common trade market and, mm-hmm. a, and a common political market and a common monetary policy. Why? They're going to be the next superpower. That was just eight years ago. Right. India is rapidly coming to a close and has, you know, 700 million people who don't have sewage. Russia, the, you know, think about the BRICS, mm-hmm. Brazil, Russia, India. Each of them has very serious problems and their growth is slowing down at a time when they are not yet rich. So I think just on a relative basis, we're not quite as bad off as everybody thinks. Well, I feel better already. And then you talk about the intrinsic enduring strengths of the United States. What are they? I mean, America has 4% of the world's population and about 30% of the economy. As you point out, that can be seen either as a great thing or as a potential problem. Well, this is where we get into you know what decline means. There are the relative declinists, and I would put myself in that category, who say it's just not tenable and it doesn't make sense for us, 4% of the population, to be one-third of global output, which is what we were in 2000. And now we're down to about 28%. It's what is output? The total global economy, the okay. total amount of stuff produced and consumed – we're four percent, and we do. You know, in two thousand, we did about a third of it for mm-hmm. the world. Now we're down to about twenty-eight percent. That means we're, we're going still down. punching <laughs> above our weight seven times. Right. And what that means is, every year, millions of more people are. They're not. They're not getting rich. They're. They're getting sort of the very basics of subsistence living, which is a good thing. Right. We should not need to have this kind of imbalanced growth. So that sort of decline, where we get to a point where we're twenty-five percent of global GDP or twenty percent of global GDP not necessarily a bad thing for humanity. And in my book, I talk about how it's not necessarily a bad thing for us because we have all sorts of ways of participating in this global growth that that we're not even aware of. Indeed you do. And we'll get to some of those later. You begin your book in earnest with a chapter on policy in which you talk about how the U.S. government's first, that of President Bush and later President Obama's, how they responded to the financial crisis with stimulus packages, bailouts, aid to the auto companies. There's this vague general sense, heavily promoted by some politicians, but even groups also like Occupy Wall Street, that those moves were just disastrous. But you don't see it that way. Well, I don't. And this is, I think, you know, a lot of the people and my colleagues in the sort of New York, D.C. axis who really focus on politics and policy. This is the one chapter they want to talk about. There are 12 chapters. One chapter is about policy and the rest is about the private sector. And many people have written books about what happened in the stimulus and what happened in the bailouts and the behind the scenes and what Larry Summers said to Tim Geithner and who was mean to Sheila Baer. And I'm sort of over that. My point is that the government did enough and it did it rapidly enough to avoid a second Great Depression. And one of the things that got me started on this book, in 2009, I was in Japan. We met with the one of the governors of the central bank. And he showed us, he said, you know, you guys did in the U.S. exactly what we did in response to our crisis of the late 80s in the same order. You know, you cut interest rates, you expanded deposit insurance, you gave aid to the banks, you did quantitative easing, all this technical stuff. But the U.S. did in 16 months what it took Japan 12 years to do. Okay, So a much more rapid response. 
And when you look, the economy shrinking at a 6% annual rate in the first quarter of 2009, growing at a 4% annual rate in the third quarter, that's an incredible wrenching turnaround that would not have been possible without that policy. Now, was the policy optimal? No. Did they handle the housing mess properly, Wall Street reform? All that stuff, I think you can say, has not been optimal. It wasn't optimal in the 30s when FDR got us out of the Great Depression. My point and the perspective I bring is that the policy was the sort of necessary thing to do first. The Federal Reserve coming in and guaranteeing everything. Um, all these rescue programs, there are a lot of obscure ones that essentially the government made money on. Uh, and everybody said they are going to expose us to trillions of dollars in liabilities. They haven't. That was enough to sort of stop the panic and let the private sector do what it is really good at, which is restructuring, innovating, engaging – moving forward. Then your next chapter after a policy is about restructuring, which, as you say, is a very American thing. But it's not always a pleasant experience. It involved cutting payroll, idling factories, and cram down. Essentially, things that were promised are, are yep. unpromised. But as a result, the private sector emerged better and stronger. Yeah, I think, you A, you find your, your bottom... Uh, of where you're going to be more quickly and get to equ equilibrium faster when you move more quickly. We are a very pro-cyclical people. And what does that mean? That means when everything is going in one direction, everybody piles on, right? right? right. So we create one internet company and then we create 100 the next month. And it's pro-cyclical in the other way. When everybody sours on something and decides it's awful, you get this massive pile on, which is why we get 20 books about America in decline <laughs> instead of two. And companies... They see their orders go down. A European company might say, you know what, let's just uh, cut back on hours and we'll share jobs. An American company says, no, we're going to fire 40 percent of our employees because we want to get into a shape where we can be profitable again. Mm. And of course, when you do that at the same time everybody else is doing it, it makes things that much worse. And that was that massive downdraft we had in the fourth quarter of 08, first quarter of 2009. Very pro-cyclical. But what that meant was companies sort of got into fighting shape better. There, was, there were a lot of bailouts and people are really focused on, you know, we didn't let people fail. Well, we didn't let some banks fail. We didn't let two auto companies fail. We didn't let one big insurance company. There was a lot of bankruptcy. The bankruptcy filings by companies went up. You know, they doubled. A lot of foreclosure. We processed this failure really quickly. And I have examples where I talk about, you know, a company like CIT, small business lender, goes into bankruptcy November 2009. Five weeks later, $10 billion of debt is wiped out. New CEO, new business model, public company going on and doing its thing. This doesn't happen in other countries that quickly. And while that can be painful, and especially if, since we don't have the best safety net in the world, what it does, it puts your corporate sector at large in a better position to move forward. Occupy Wall Street talks about how corporations have record profits. They have $2 trillion of cash on hand. Yeah. Well, they did that not because their business in the U.S. was growing so rapidly. They did it first because they rationalized. They tried to get more efficient. They tried to get more productive. They invested in things that helped them do more with less. And then they went out and tried to find new business given that the home market wasn't growing so rapidly – Figure out new ways to do things. And they also, as you say, were efficient. I love that chapter because um, I learned, for example, that UPS trucks never take left turns. 
But as you said, that was something of a compromise. It means other countries like Japan had this cool biz initiative, which basically means that offices are at 80 degrees in the summer, or you know, London has congestion pricing so that you have to pay if you drive your car. We, those things are not politically viable in the U.S., but there are some sometimes small things that companies can do. Right. We, we also tend to think that foreigners and particularly Europeans in Japan are much better at this sort of stuff. That's not for us, right? Only, but when you look at it, What's very powerful is when American businesses grasp efficiency things and turn them into businesses of themselves. So, you know, Walmart decided, you know, we have the world's biggest trucking fleet. We're going to get them more fuel efficient because we waste a lot of money on fuel and they've made their fleet 35, 40% more fuel efficient. We talked to the example of UPS essentially writes has software that that designs routes so that their trucks don't have to make left turns. It saves them over the course of a year tens of millions of dollars and, and time and emissions and all that sort of stuff. Let's pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Better, Stronger, Faster isn't available on Audible for the moment, at least, but Dan's 2009 book, Dumb Money, is. Dan, can you remind us what that book is about? Dumb Money was how uh, – the subtitle was How Our Greatest Financial Minds Bankrupted the Nation and it was a you know, short take on how everything got so messed up. And of course, this is in many ways the sequel right. because it's looking away from housing and finance and Washington and Wall Street and the many ways in which people around the country, companies around the country, institutions – are doing things better or you know, correctly right. that if they are adopted more broadly have the potential to lead to real gains for everybody. Right on. Well, to get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download Dumb Money or any of the other 100,000 audiobooks available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit. That's audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Dan has very kindly given us some copies of Better, Stronger, Faster to give away to listeners, and he has even signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words gross giveaway in the subject line to slateafterward at gmail.com by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, June 29th, 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at gmail.com. I'm talking to Dan Gross, author of the new book, Better, Stronger, Faster, The Myth of American Decline and the Rise of a New Economy. Foreign direct investment is always one of those terms that makes me wish I'd done a more practical major in college. But the way you tell it seems to be about foreigners 
buying property here in the U.S. or investing in U.S. internal resources. And sometimes there's a resistance to that. But of course, it's better for the economy if Chinese companies or the Chinese government, for example, spend money on American things rather than American debt. Right. right. Well, so this is a very politicized topic. And when you start talking about foreign direct investment or FDI, people immediately say, oh, yeah, it's you know, the Chinese central bank buying government bonds. That's capital flows. That's a whole different thing. When we talk about foreign direct investment, it's companies and individuals around the world putting money to work in the U.S. It could be the British heiress who bought the Aaron Spelling House. It could be a Colombian company buying and building a factory in Virginia. And these are all pieces I have in my book. It could be Fiat taking over Chrysler and then investing in its dealership networks. And first of all, this has always happened. When, When we needed money to build the railroads in the 19th century, it all came from Europe. People may remember back in the 80s when Japan Inc. was rampant. Japanese companies bought the Pebble Beach Golf Club. They bought Rockefeller Center and you know, as, as if they were going to take it back to Tokyo with them. <laughs> and never mind that, by the way, they bought at the absolute top and sort of lost all their money. So this process always happens. And the U.S., again, even at its depths of self-pity, uh, we lead the world in foreign direct investment. Everybody thinks, oh, it's what was it, Mumbai, Dubai or bye-bye. All the Americans want to tell you about their strategy for investing overseas. You meet people overseas, they will talk to you about their strategies for investing in the mm-hmm. U.S. And there are 50 different reasons, right? We're the, we have a huge domestic market of 300 million people. We have assets that are very appealing. You know, uh, Russian investors bought into Facebook. Um, this is a very safe place to park your money. No one is going to confiscate it. Mm-hmm. So all these rich Brazilians and Argentinians and South Americans buy condos in Miami and then they set up businesses here. We have very good money managers. So people come here and find a mutual fund. That, that's a form of direct investment. And so this cycle where the rest of the world is getting a lot more money, one of the things they want to do when they get rich is put it to work in the U.S. And foreign direct investment is just one way they do that, we had about $150 billion in 2011. Again, a very high number, more than anywhere else in the world. Now, you can look at that two ways. You could say it means we can't afford to finance ourselves and mm-hmm. do the projects we want to do. But it also means that you know, even at our depths of dysfunction and losing our credit rating and having a crazy Congress and all that, a lot of people want to pay a premium for the stuff we have. Um, and that's actually quite good. We, we made an awful lot of very bad financial choices, especially when it came to real estate and housing. And to a large degree, foreigners are bailing us out of those. And again, I would be more worried if they weren't buying them. And you know, I use the example of you know, the New Jersey Nets, perhaps the most pathetic uh, professional sports franchise in the U.S., right? I mean, they played in somewhere in New Jersey. Yeah, somewhere haven't really won anything, forever second fiddle to the New York Knicks. And they were owned by a a New York uh, real estate developer and he got into a bit of trouble. He's building this ambitious new arena in Brooklyn next to the food co-op. And, uh, (laughs) you know, he put it up for sale and a a Russian industrialist bought it for $200 million. And these sorts of things are happening every day, all day. And I think that is actually a positive. And you also talk about this new kind of exports, which are expensive services like money management, which you've mentioned, education, healthcare, tourism, which attracts overseas visitors to the United States and drive them to spend money here. Is that really significant, though? Yes. And uh, again, one of the great myths, you hear people say, oh, we don't make anything anymore. Well, we don't make T-shirts and we don't make electronics. But the U.S. last year 
$2.2 trillion in exports, the world's biggest exporter. China is not the world's biggest exporter. We are. One of the biggest things we export is food, $140 billion of agricultural exports, you know, grains. The, the world wants to eat more. Commodity prices are rising. So people in Dakotas are growing everything they can and shipping it overseas. Uh, on the other end of the scale, Boeing. Right? Think about those planes. They're $300 million objects. I visited a uh, General Electric turbine factory where they make these $25 million gas turbines for power plants. They were making 90 last year, every single one of those going overseas. So there's a lot of stuff that we build and we sell to other people overseas. But we can also export just by sitting here at home. We're a service economy. Uh, when somebody comes here to attend a university and pays tuition, that's an export. In 2011, we had a record number of foreign students. So despite all the obstacles and the problems with visas and the fact that we're not very welcoming, record number of people coming – helping to pay for the overhead, and these people tend to pay full freight frequently. Tourism, again, JFK is probably one of the least welcoming <laughs> places on earth. Can you imagine right. if that was your sort of first blush? But every year, more and more people have the wherewithal to come here and spend. 2011, a record. 63 million people came from outside the U.S. And, you know, they stay in hotels, they stay in restaurants, they shop, they do all the things that American consumers do, but we've been doing a little less of because we mm -hmm. don't have the money. But they're doing it in large numbers, and that that's to the good. And the same thing with healthcare. People come here for surgery. That's an export. And again, with every passing year, more people can afford to do this. I was in um, a real hardship duty. I was in la last February, was at the University of Hawaii oh. for a week. And, you know, there are two big tourist markets are Japan and the west coast of the U.S., both of which are doing poorly. They are just now starting to get direct flights to China. The Chinese tourists who come spend more per day than either the Japanese or the Americans. And, you know, it's tens of thousands now, but there are a billion people who live in that country, mm -hmm. which all of which means we have to get more comfortable with foreigners at our restaurants and stores and our places of work. And, you know, New York, that's not an issue because we're very accustomed to this. And, you know, you go to Italy, which is mm. the, the Mario Batali Emporium, and, of course, it's all these Italian imports, and those are just the people. Right? Right. <laughs> it's, it's full of Italians who have come over here right. to have espresso. Now, you also talk about uh, a term, I don't know if it's your coinage, again, imports. Uh, that's where... Imports. Yes, with an N, imports. Yeah, it's a clever coinage of phrase, which... Yes. Yeah, is it, is it a grossism? Us professional writers, Julia, you know, we... <laughs> You do we, that? We try to do that from time to time. Well done. people on their toes. Well done, sir. That's when American companies sell products made somewhere else to people who live somewhere else. So Intel selling chips made in the Philippines to customers in Indonesia, IBM consultants in Italy servicing clients in Slovenia. But how does Chinese customers buying Buicks made in China help the U.S. economy? Well, this is – it's more of an indirect way. So you use that example of GM and – Buicks. You know, Buicks are sort of left for dead in the U.S. I was in Shanghai last November, and we visited the – it's a joint venture between GM and a local Chinese company where they make hundreds of thousands of Buicks. Apparently, the last emperor drove one. I think, I, in fact, my uncle ended up with that car. <laughs> um, so it, it has the – it's like a luxury mark over there. It's like their town car. It sells several hundred thousand a year. We visit this factory. It's like any factory you would see uh, in the U.S., GM now sells more cars in China than it does in the U.S. Now, that doesn't do a whole lot of good for your typical worker. But it does a lot of good for the shareholders. Uh, 
It does a lot of good for the bondholders and the creditors. And by the way, remember, one of the big problems GM had is that it had made all these commitments to its retirees and its employees on health care, pensions, etc., that it, it didn't bother to fund and couldn't hope to meet. The only hope at a lot of these companies, not just GM uh, or Chrysler or – but a lot of industrial companies, of them living up to the commitments they've made relies on how their business does overseas. The, the profits get streamed upwards so they'll be able to fund their pensions, fund their health care benefits. In the case of GM, pay back the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you know, when a company fails, its pension fails, the taxpayers pick up the bill. So all these unfunded pensions out there are you know, sort of contingent liabilities. They're things that Americans could be on the hook for. And the success that companies are having overseas is enabling them to take care of those. So it's, it's an indirect thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you know, they're making – you think about they're making profits overseas. Uh, they're holding them hostage. They're not paying taxes on them, mm-hmm. but they should. So when they do, that'll be good for us. And of course, there is great asset inequality in this country, but a lot of people are in pensions. A lot of people have IRAs, 401ks, et cetera. Uh, anybody who is a stockholder is, you know, this is a lot of what is driving this. The typical company in the Standard & Poor's 500, that's the index of the 500 largest companies, is already getting half of its revenues from overseas. Wow. And again, my point is if we were in a nation in decline, if we were somehow being left behind by all these developments in the world, if we were unable to make sense and play in these arenas, then our companies would not be the ones building the cars. They would not be the ones developing the new beverage products. Uh, Use an example. Coke has this product called Pulpy, sort of like an orangina. Mm. It is now the 13th brand that sells a billion dollars. It's never been sold in the U.S. Mm. It was developed in Asia and it's sold in Kazakhstan and places like that. Our companies have this great ability to sell stuff and increasingly it's going to matter less and less where they're selling it. But you've got to be in all these different places if you are to thrive and we need our companies to be healthy. That's the sort of minimum before we tax them appropriately and get them to pay good wages, et cetera. They've got to be thriving in the markets that that have growth. For my last question, I usually ask people what they learned from the research they did in their books, how it changed their life. But since your book is absolutely packed with anecdotes from your very extensive travels all over the United States and the world, I want to ask you to tell me about one memory from a reporting trip that encapsulates why you believe the American declinists are wrong. So several years ago, I was with a group of journalists in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And we went to a secondary school and we are trying to talk with these kids who are, you know, 14, 15. We really don't have much in common with them. And you know, we start talking, so, you know, what do you guys like to do in your spare time? Well, they, they go on YouTube. They listen to music. And I said, uh, who do you like to listen to? And they said, Hannah Montana. <laughs> now, I was the father of a, a little girl at the time. So I really – I knew all about Miley Cyrus and her alter ego and my first thought was, you know, good God, haven't these people suffered enough in American <laughs> hands for one century? And my second thought is, here's a country of 87 million people who are just beginning to consume some of this dreck we produce. Mm-hmm. Think how – what we could do with some of the good material we produce. Mm-hmm. And the world is so much more open, not to us as tourists, which of course it is, right? Could I mm-hmm, imagine mm-hmm. going to Vietnam in, when sure. I was their age in the early 80s? It's open us as tourists, but it's really open to our ideas, our businesses, our content. When I was in, in Beijing, I had you know, lunch with the Chinese publisher who had 
bought the rights to my most recent book. They didn't pay all that much, but 10 years before, they would have just taken sure. the book. And 10 years before, they would not have published something, right? So we're moving into this world where increasingly, if you're smart, the U.S. is sort of the rump market. And you see this really in entertainment and mm-hmm. movies, right? The Avengers had this crazy blockbuster, did $170 million in its first weekend. But before it had opened in the U.S., it had already done $420 million overseas <laughs> in its first two weeks. You open overseas first. This is something that obviously if you're a big company, you can afford to do. But the little people, including people like me, have a much greater ability to do that than ever before. And that gives me some – sort of optimism about the future. That's awesome. Dan, thanks once again for bringing that dose of optimism to the afterword. That was Daniel Gross, whose new book, Better, Stronger, Faster, The Myth of American Decline and the Rise of a New Economy, is available in bookstores now. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive director of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.